0: Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message you are encouraged, challenged and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au but Matthew and Luke particularly tell all the story of, of the Christmas story, but John John does it in this kind of really deep philosophical way. You know, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. I read it, and we started looking at it a couple of weeks ago, but the bit I wanted to get into today was just in verse 4 to 5, where it says, this Word, this, this Word that was with God, who actually was God, and he's talking about Jesus, it says, in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who likes movies? Okay, what sort of movies do you like? Action and adventure, comedy. Sorry, sci-fi, western, foreign with subtitles. High five. Love love foreign movies with subtitles. Just just so I can brag that I've seen a foreign movie with a subtitle. One of my favourite genres of movie. Um, are the biographical movies, stories about people's lives. Um, I tend to love those kind of, based on a true story, real life human drama things, because I think um, I just love to see stories about humanity, particularly when it involves humanity overcoming things, sort of redemptive sort of stories. You know what I mean? Like, where you go, wow, you come out of that and you go, I have hope in humankind again after seeing that movie. A, a couple of weeks ago, I came across one that, I don't know whether it had been on at the cinemas, but, you know, these days on your television, you've got access to everything, and I went on my Telstra movies thing, and there was a movie called The Keeper. Has anyone heard of it? The Keeper? No? OK, one person. Yes. Good on you, Tom Tom. OK. <laughs> kindred spirit. Um, It's it's a a true story of um, a a guy who was a German prisoner of war based in World War II um, who was taken back with other prisoners to England and while he was in England um, he ended up playing as the goalkeeper for a local football team while still a prisoner of war as the war was going on. they tried to keep it a secret that he was German, but he wasn't prepared to keep it a secret. He just let everyone know. But he was so good that um, when, it came, when the war was actually finished and he was supposed to be repatriated back to Germany, he refused to go, and Manchester City Football Club signed him as their first string keeper. Now, you've got to bear in mind, right, World War II has just finished. There's a lot of very raw open wounds still and there's this guy who was once the enemy now playing for this first division football club. Now there was such an outcry that 20,000 people protested the fact that this guy had been signed up. They didn't want him because he was German. So. I watched this story and, and it ends with him, you know, like he's he's a massive success and he goes on to the point that he, he stayed, I think, for five years as their principal keeper and he was held in such high regard and high esteem by the time he left that they actually removed his goalposts at the end of his time so no one else could stand between them, right? This is the trajectory that this guy's gone from this kind of reviled enemy to this honoured man and he was awarded awards from England and from Germany Germany as well, um, for his efforts towards reconciliation and peace. And so you go, well, that's a fantastic story. So I thought, I'll I'll Google it as I do everything, right? Because it's the internet and it's the source of all truth, right? So I I, I go on the internet and I want to look at it because I'm like, I want to find out um, how close to reality this story was. Because in the movie, they make him out to be a somewhat reluctant... um, participant in the war on the side of Germany. He's like someone who's never really bought into it. He was just happened to be German. He got conscripted and he had to fight. He got captured and he was kind of happy that he got captured. But it's actually not the truth. The truth is actually that the guy was indoctrinated quite heavily while he was at school. He really bought into what Hitler was saying. He didn't, he wasn't conscripted. He voluntarily joined the, the German army, he became a paratrooper, one of their elite units, and he, won, he fought for three years and won an Iron Cross, like a high award for bravery in battle. This guy was like a full-on warrior for the enemy. And I thought to myself, why did they leave that part of it out? Why did they feel the need to diminish that and pretty up the story? I mean, a lot of, a lot of movies do this, don't they? on our behalf. They kind of, they, they, they see a story and they go, "Ooh, there's some unpleasantness in that story. There's things where it's a little, little complicated. It's not straight up and down, you know. These, these characters in these stories, I don't know, probably like us, like all humans, we're, we're, not, we're not easy to categorise. We're not kind of one-dimensional. We've got some good stuff about us and we've got some not so good stuff about us. Anyone else? Yeah? Okay? So, so it, it surprises me when they make these movies that they try and sort of hone off the rough edges of the, the story in, in a way that they think makes it a little more accessible to us. But as I was looking through that, I thought, you know, most movies do that. They kind of try and gloss over and airbrush over the really unpleasant bits. But for me, what I found when I did that research, I thought, that actually makes the story even more powerful. Right? It wasn't that he was a guy who didn't want to get involved in the war, was relieved when he kind of got taken out of it and then, you know, went on and did this thing. This guy was, he was a signed-up, card-carrying member. He believed in what he was doing. And then, somehow, and it's not explained in the movie because they don't start with the idea that he's, he's over here anyway, he has this transformation where he's like, he becomes this other person, his thinking changes and he's more interested in bringing hope and reconciliation to people than he is actually killing someone. And I was thinking about the Christmas story and how we do the same thing with that. How it's all very pretty, how it's all very sanitised in most of the ways that we actually express it. We've got baby Jesus, we've got Mary Joseph surrounded by kings bringing gifts, we've got stars and angels and shepherds. But you know, that's the movie version. That's the sanitised mashup of all the bits and pieces rolled into a nice story that we can actually um, that we can actually sell uh, at Christmas time. But we know that the real Christmas episode it it, it wasn't even close to being pretty and pristine. It was actually really, really gritty, and the Gospel writers are not the ones that try and hide that fact from us. We're the ones that actually pretty up the story. The Gospel writers have no trouble whatsoever in just laying out the story as it actually is, warts and all, with all the tension, with all the trauma, with all the turmoil and all the pain and all the grief that came with it. I mean, think about the story. You've got an unwed, pregnant teenager to start with. All right, That's scandalous in and of itself. You've got a fiance who feels like he's been betrayed. So there's this aspect of infidelity that's at play. And the infidelity isn't just a relational dynamic. In that time and place, if that had become public knowledge, Mary could quite literally have been stoned to death for adultery. So you've got this dangerous, incredibly dangerous element to it as well. Joseph has to be convinced not to divorce, or he was going to do it quietly because he didn't want to expose her to disgrace and to danger. But an angel has to come along and say, no, 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 the story she's telling you is true. I mean, just imagine that one. Imagine, you know, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or well, your boyfriend's not going to turn up and say he's pregnant, I hope, but <laughs> telling you something that's really just a little bit too hard to believe, right? That it takes an angelic visitation for you to actually go, Okay, I guess, I, I guess ultimately then I believe that story. It's set against the backdrop of a Roman occupation. These people are oppressed. Everything they do is controlled by a foreign government, a foreign military power who's overtaken their country. And it, at the stroke of a quill or whatever they happened to use in those days, the chisel or whatever it was, Corinius, the the Roman governor at the time, decides he wants to take a census. And with that one decision, they've got to make a 175-kilometre journey in the middle of winter on the back of a donkey while she's heavily pregnant. They can't find anywhere to stay, not only because the place is full, because undoubtedly they had relatives around the place. That was originally where his family were from. But even the relatives aren't going to put this young family up because she is pregnant and they are not married. And there is this shame and there is this stigma around all of that. Then you've got the, the, the manger, that we, the manger. It's, it's, it is a cave, it is a dirty, filthy animal cave. And it stinks, and it's full of animal excrement. And then she has the baby in there, so there is blood and gore and guts. But we've mashed up this story into one really nice, presentable, uh, presentable little piece. And I mean, in our version, we have three kings at the manger with their gifts. The fact is, we don't know how many kings there were. The Bible doesn't actually say three. We just made up a song about it. There could have been two. There could have been four. I mean, Bob Larson from the far side says that the fourth one was sent away for bringing fruitcake. So (laughs) we don't know. There could have been ten. But for some reason, we've decided to settle on three. And they weren't at the manger. This is two years later. The magi did not turn up until two years later. We know that for a fact because it says they didn't go to a manger, they go to a house and the words that are used to describe Jesus at the manger and when the magi visit are different words that actually distinguish the age. In the manger, Jesus is referred to as a nepion, that's the Greek word for a baby and you know it means baby because he's always got his nepion, right? That was literally how I was taught to remember it. That's, that's, there's some theological education right there, hey? (laughs) But when the Magi turn up, Jesus is referred to as a Pideon, from which we get the word paediatrics, which was a term that was reserved for children who were at least two years old. So this is about two years later. And they weren't kings. They weren't kings. They were Magi. They were, at best, astrologers, but probably... More realistically, they were magicians, magicians, occultic magicians, not the weird ones David Copperfield you see on TV, more like the weird ones that hang out at Parkley Markets, (laughs) right? I'm not joking, okay? The guys with the weird turbans and the magic carpets and the crystal balls, that guy, that's who they were. But they weren't kings we've made them kings who are happy about jesus being born and bringing him gifts because we're trying to cover up the fact that there is a king in the story do you know who that is sorry no this is a sunday school answer good sunday school answer and yes you're right technically jesus is the king There is a king in this story, Herod, and he's not happy about Jesus being born, and he's not bringing gifts, and he's not a nice guy. Herod was such an insecure megalomaniac that he had his favourite wife, bear this in mind, his favourite wife, so it begs begs the question, what happens if you're not his favourite, his favorite wife, and three of his sons executed because he thought they were making a play for his power. This is the guy we're dealing with. This is the king that is in the backdrop of this story. So when he hears the news that another king has been born in Jerusalem, he doesn't go down to Maya and get a present. He calls the Magi in and he says, oh, isn't this wonderful news, you must tell me where he's born and where he's hanging out so I can go and pay homage to him too. Now, they're magicians, right, but they're not thick. They realise he doesn't want to go and worship Jesus and so they don't tell him and Herod is so enraged and infuriated that he orders infanticide and All the children in Jerusalem, all the male children two years and under, are slaughtered. And an angel turns up to Joseph one night. You know, when angels appear in the Bible, normally the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. To which I say, you try not being afraid if I was an angel turning up to talk to you. All right, so let's just accept currently I'm afraid, right? Normally they say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. This time the angel turns up and the first thing he says is, you've got to get out of here. You've got to run. You've got to pick up Mary and Jesus and you've got to get down to Egypt as quick as possible because Herod is trying to kill him. That's the story. Where's the diorama for that? Where's the nativity scene that takes all of that into account? Has anyone seen one recently? Recently? I was thinking of doing one up at Castle Towers, just behind Santa's grotto, filthy animal stall, blood everywhere, wailing mothers. What's this about? Well, this is the backdrop to the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. So why do we do it? Why do we sanitise the story? I get it. We don't want to focus on yucky stuff. No one wants to focus on yucky stuff. No one wants to focus on the negative things. Anyone like focusing on negative things? No. We don't want to focus on the negative things. We don't have to focus on it. We don't have to have, you know, Herod wrapping paper and Christmas cards. You know, have, why have I got a Christmas card with Herod on it? Well, it's all part of the Christmas story. Okay. You know... As I say, dioramas with wailing mothers, true-to-life nativity scenes with all the smells and screaming. We don't have to do that. But we don't have to airbrush it out altogether either because I think that doing that robs the story of its power. It takes something away from the incredible nature of what was going on there. So why do we do it? Do we do it to make it more accessible and relatable? If it is, it's not working because that is not the world that I actually live in. The world I live in doesn't actually reflect, isn't actually reflected in a nice, clean, pristine nativity scene where you've got kings and Joseph and Mary and Jesus and then maybe some shepherds who are all in inexplicably clean robes with halos. That's not my world, my world is not pristine like that, my world is not clean. The world I inhabit and the world I live in, it gets messy and it gets ugly. And there is pain and there is tragedy and there is all sorts of horrible, senseless things that go on. All the stuff that intrudes almost daily into our lives via the new, some sort of news feed that reminds us again just how broken this world is. Even this year we're dealing with you know natural disasters like bushfires that have killed people and are displacing people, volcanic eruption on a tourist spot things like that none of this stuff stops for christmas have you noticed bad news doesn't take a break over christmas period it continues to find its way into our world because it's not a nice clean world we live in so if it's not to be more relatable what is it is it a way of escapism and denial do we do we find it easier to to just you know all these pretty dioramas out and sing all these songs and and talk about all the the loving nice festival things that go along with christmas christmas as a way of not having to look at all the nasty stuff or is it deeper do we think that the two realities are not connected in some way do we just have trouble reconciling them in my first year at theological college um, we used to live on campus, and it was the days before theological colleges and most theologi- uh, most institutions were, you know, you could do them online or remote. You had to actually go to classes consistently. So Monday to Friday, I had classes. But every single day of the week, we had a chapel service. You You think you find it hard to come to church once a week? I had to go to church five times during the week and then twice again on Sundays. That's why I'm a pastor and I'm getting into heaven before all of you. So... <laughs> So, we would have one of these and, and at every chapel service, one day of the week would be a staff member would, would do the message, but the other four days, students were all rostered on to take their turn. You Can imagine how like terrifying that is? Um, to have to do a, a, a preach in front of the entire college and all the staff. I'm a first year theological student. I've not done this sort of thing before and it's my day to be on. It's my day to be on. And so I've prepared as best I can, you know, a kind of yee isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? Let's change the world. Now you can go back to class. You know, like it was that type of thing. So we've done our worship time and they're just about to get me up. But before they do, someone gets up and makes an announcement and says, listen, college, I just need to let you know that Um, so-and-so who was like an ex-student from not that long ago um, passed away this morning, lost his battle with cancer, married with kids. And everyone in that room except the first year students knew this guy. So they make this announcement and then they say okay Adrian it's over to you. I just remember my, the wheels in my head just going a million miles an hour like it's already bad enough having to get up here and talk in this room full of people, these theological students and these lecturers. This is terrifying. But now we have got that to deal with. And I had to deal with it because it wasn't just an announcement. The, the whole environment shifted palpably. Grief entered that room. Death entered that room. Cancer entered that room and hung around like a big, dark cloud and I kind of was like inching my way up like if I if I take like half an hour to get there we can just go Um, because I'm like I don't know what to do I don't know what to do you can't just leave that hanging out there and then go in hey isn't it great to be a Christian hooray you know like it, it just felt so weird And I'm ashamed to say that I couldn't think of what to do, so I just did what I had. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't remember anything I spoke about that day, I'm pretty sure no one else did, because etched on everyone's faces was just grief and loss and sadness and confusion. You could see it in the posture of people. And I wish I could say that was the last time I fumbled something like that, but it's not. I fumbled that sort of stuff a lot. I've been in in ministry nearly 30 years and there are some Sundays where I've, you know, I've started preparing sometimes weeks in advance or at least a week in advance of what I'm going to do. But that week something happens. 9-11, tsunamis, terrorist attacks, bushfires, you know, it just, something comes on the news and you go into church and you go, we just going to carry on like that's not happening? Are we just going to, like, keep doing business as usual and not acknowledge this thing that's going on? And I, I'm ashamed to say, a lot of the time, simply because I have not known what to do, that's exactly what I've done. I've gone in there and i said, let's not look over there, let's just look here. And look, again, people could say, well, yeah, you don't need to focus on that stuff. That's right, you don't need to focus on that stuff. But we shouldn't ignore it either and we don't need to ignore it either don't get me wrong i'm not suggesting that we suck the joy and wonder out of christmas by ignoring all the good stuff and just focusing on the dark stuff you know like let's just talk about herod and you know the slaughter of innocents and how horrible everything was i mean that'd be a fun christmas wouldn't it it'd be like who wants to go to christmas at restore no No, gosh, have you heard what they talk about? It's depressing, okay? We should celebrate and focus on all the great stuff about Christmas, all the hope, the joy, all the dynamics that that come with Christmas for so many people. It's a wonderful time of the year. But we don't need to ignore the less great stuff in order to do that. They're not incongruous. The saviour of the world entered the world against the backdrop of the murder of innocents And the Bible writers don't try and hide that from us because both things were true. But one thing was actually truer than the other. John says that the light shines in the darkness. Light and darkness, they're coexistent realities. But he goes on to say that the darkness could not overcome it. We don't need to airbrush or edit out the difficult pieces of the story because they actually give the story even more depth and even more power the darkness the darker the darkness the brighter the light yeah in the same way that in that story if they had told the true story about that young german guy and how dedicated he was to his cause originally that makes his transformation even greater so the darker the darkness the brighter the light there was nothing favorable in the story of the setting of jesus birth and yet here we are today 2,000 years later, so much was against it succeeding and yet God's program for the restoration of all creation not only took hold, it has continued to grow and we are now part of that all this time later. Maybe the reason we feel like we need to pretty it up is because we're the ones that have a problem with feeling like God and Jesus can't be part of something so dirty and so messy. But the Christmas story reveals a God who has entered our world exactly as it exists, and not the world we often wish it would be or try and make it out to be. God's love is too pure to enter a world that doesn't exist, even though that is often how we treat Jesus, like we're trying to shelter him from some sort of harsh reality. But we need to remember in all of this, guys, Jesus came to earth, Christmas happened, the incarnation happened because... Because of our reality, not in spite of it he doesn't need protecting from that reality he came to do something about about it actually that reality needs protecting from Jesus that's how it works. We often behave as though Jesus is only interested in saving and loving a sanitized version of ourselves or an idealized version of our mess of a world and so we try and present to him a version of the best of both see so maybe we want to try And deny the ugly reality of us in our world but he doesn't again we need to remind ourselves it's why he came and here's what i want us to get jesus entered the world as it was 2000 years ago and he enters the world and he enters your world just as it is today in all its imperfection in all its ugliness with both the good and the bad what does that mean for us in practical terms well simple We don't need to keep the Herods out of the Christmas story because of the hope that comes with Christmas. It says the light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it. It has not dulled it, it has not and it will not extinguish it. Those bits of the stories that we try to leave out, the pain and the suffering, are essential to the story because they help us understand why this baby who came into the world is so important. He came because of that stuff, he came to do something about that stuff. God did not sit detached and disinterested from all of it. He entered into it, not only to be with us in the middle of it, but to be a part of transforming it and changing it through us. It is because of those things he came. And because he came, we're told to look forward to a day in this world where he will wipe every tear from our eye and there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more tears. That's what's coming. That's what this entry into the world 2,000 years ago started. And it's a program that is still continuing and will culminate one day in a world where we don't have that ugliness, where there are no Herods, where there is no backdrop of pain and suffering, when, when tragedy and, and cruelty don't break in to our everyday experience because it'll be a world where these things have no place anymore. That's the world that is coming. When darkness shows up, we don't need to avoid it, ignore it or escape it because the light of this story is so much more powerful than any darkness. And that's what I wish I'd known that day in our college chapel, that it's okay to acknowledge the darkness, it's okay to go right now, Death has just walked into the room. Darkness has just brought a big cloud in here. And we need to acknowledge the fact that it's a reality and it hurts and it's painful and there is loss and there is deep grief and sadness with all of this. But we have this hope that this darkness does not get to extinguish the light. In fact, it's the opposite. This light will actually extinguish that darkness in the here and now, and ultimately forever in the future. So we can stand, we can acknowledge the darkness, we can go, hi darkness, hi ugliness, hi cruelty, we know you exist. But we're standing in a story that's about your demise. We're standing with a light that actually dispels your darkness. We're standing with a light that one day will fill this entire world and you will no longer have a place in it. And this is the hope that we stand on in the meantime. This is the hope we cling to in the meantime. We don't have to airbrush it out. We can acknowledge it because the light is stronger than the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome this light. No matter how dark it is, it cannot overcome this light. And it also means that your story, my story, it doesn't have to be a pretty one for Jesus to enter. You know, there are times where I've invited people around to our place, but I say, can you give me an hour so I can go home and clean up? Why? Because I don't want my friends to come into my mess. There was even a time where I got home and cleaned up before a cleaner came. This is true. And I think sometimes we're like that with Jesus. People don't want to get involved with Jesus either at all or even if they have a relationship with God, they try and keep him at arm's length because shame becomes a factor in that relationship where it's like, I don't want him seeing my mess. And it's like, well, he sees it, (laughs) okay? Well, I don't want him coming into my mess. Well, you know what? That's exactly why he's here. You don't need to clean yourself up You don't need to sanitize yourself. You don't need to sanitize your story for Jesus to get involved. It doesn't matter how messed up your story is. It couldn't be more messed up than the world he entered 2,000 years ago, right? And he wants to enter your story no matter how messed up you think it is. And he wants to enter it in because he wants to come in the same light that he did 2,000 years ago to try and dispel that darkness, to, to bring healing And forgiveness and hope and restoration into your story like he has in the world it doesn't make sense to keep at one the arm's length who wants to be with you in the middle of it all to love you and to care for you and to provide you with all you need to overcome this that can dissipate that darkness when we remember this story we need to remember all of the story god comes to the worst places and to the most painful circumstances, to bring his light, his love, his healing, and his hope. And he is here with us all the time, because he is Emmanuel, God who is with us, present tense, God who is with us in it all. Amen. We're going to take communion now, guys. Again, a great opportunity to. I know typically we, we remember it as the time of the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection but at Christmas it's a time to remember this baby uh, of the manger is that Christ of the cross and that this was the beginning of his redemptive purposes and he stepped into the middle of it all and, and maybe personally there might be stuff going on for you now that you think I don't know I'm keeping him at arm's length or Why would he want to get involved in this? Or could he do anything about this? It's a great opportunity to sit down. And again, if you haven't, invite him into your life. Invite him into that place to bring some light into that darkness, to bring some healing, to bring some hope. Because what he started back then is still going today on a a macro scale and on a micro individual scale as well. So let's just take some time to do that and reconnect if you have lost that connection or you've never really invited Jesus into your life to do that sort of stuff. Everyone is invited, the table... Tables are at the side and at the back and we invite you all to to take it and then we'll get the team up, thanks.